Well, happy Friday, everybody. Um, I hope uh, you're having a good week. Um, It's been a little steady climb up in the market, so it looks good there. And uh, I want want apology. For some reason, I thought I posted the um, questions last week. Um, And apparently, it didn't post, and I just posted them... I think a couple of days ago, and some people were confused and thought there was another podcast I couldn't find. And those are just the questions from last week. I, I thought they were posted. I don't know why they didn't post. It just I probably just didn't click the right button. So uh, apologies for that not being there. And if in the future, if you know, if it's Friday podcast, you don't see the questions up there. I usually do them. Uh, you know, I post the questions right when I do the podcast. So uh, it just means I've forgotten or something got messed up. Please uh, just send me an email. And let me know. I'm not. It's not intentional um, to have that happen anyway. So uh, let's get right to the questions because we've got a few of them this week. Um, number one, Calabria keeps saying end the sweep and the lawsuits will largely go away. But they won't unless they settle. So <laughs> WTF, does he keep saying this? Uh, I, I, I think, again, I, I'm guessing what he means. I don't you know, have any knowledge exactly what he means, but I'm guessing what he means is uh, you know, the ending the net horse sweep um, will then start settlements with the lawsuits, and the, and you know most of them are cha- almost all of them are challenging the net worth sweep itself, uh, except the Sweeney Court. Uh, so I'm guessing he's saying the majority of them will will disappear if they end the net worth sweep and they can start settlement negotiations. I, I'm assuming that's what he means. I don't. There was nothing else in that article uh, that explained that comment anymore, and I haven't seen or heard anything since then that uh, clarified it one way or another. What do you think about the latest piece on Chesapeake and Seeking Alpha about the recent debt swap? The author claims the bad will outweigh the good. Da, 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 da. So it's never great to issue stock, um, right? It just, it's just something you never really want to see happen, um, especially when you're doing it just to pay off debt. If you're doing it to grow or to acquire someone, that's a different story. And, you know, IAPR issue stock, um, and you know the returns they're getting on the stock they're issuing are, are good, so I'm I don't have an issue with that. Um, you know Chesapeake's doing it to pay off debt, so um, it's not the ideal way you want to do it, but it needs to be done. Uh, now the good part is that you know the stocks at you know once well, I don't know what it was and they did it one sixty one seventy and they're selling shares for two ten two twenty. So there's a huge premium, and the debt holders are basically willing to willing to take a 20% haircut on their debt in the form of stock. Now, why would they do that? Well, they're doing it because they feel that the future returns in the stock will probably be bigger than the haircut they're taking. Um, and they're taking that, them taking that haircut will then allow the company to get closer to cash flow positive at a faster time which will then allow them to organically pay down some debt, number one. And number two is what everyone's looking for, right? Because then that removes the, um, the bankruptcy scare. And, you know, when you got a company that's cash flow positive, all that stuff goes away pretty quick. Free cash flow positive. All that stuff goes away pretty quick. And then the stock should react accordingly. So I'm, uh, my assumption is they're figuring they're going to make well more than 20% on that uh, in the future. And... You know, the company was trying to sell some assets, uh, but I'm guessing either I, I'm guessing that, you know, they've mentioned the Haynesville shale offer a couple of times. I'm guessing they're trying to sell it and haven't gotten what they think it's worth for it. So Lawler is figuring the more prudent solution is to s- sell some stock well above the current market price and pay off debt that way rather than sell an asset he feels is worth a lot more for less money to pay it off the other way. I'm guessing, um, but that's, I guess kind of makes the most sense as to what the logic would be. Um, so that's, it's brilliant. I mean, I guess it's, you know, the ideal way to pay off debt would be, right, to just have the earnings to be able to pay it off. Um, Extending it really doesn't do much good because you still don't get rid of the interest payments. Doing this to get in the interest payments, so that's good. Uh, the second way to do it is to sell assets to pay it off, and 
you know, based on the fact that they're choosing A over B, I'm guessing they're getting a better they're getting a better deal on the stock sales than they are in selling Haynesville assets to pay it off that way. Um, I took a small 200 share position on your recommendation of IIPR at $38 a share. With this new dividend increase they just announced, that alone pays for the subscription to your site. Thank you so much. <laughs> That's really cool. I love that. I love that. Um, and there's so many more. The good part about that is there's so many more dividend increases coming from IIPR. It's, the dividend is going to be so much higher in the next year. It's going to be a really nice income generator. We're going to be earning 10% a year or more just on the dividend based on those on those who bought at the beginning at $38 a share. So it's going to be a profitable investor for quite some time, aside from the share price appreciation. The question I have is on AIG warrants. I'm at around $17.50 per warrant. It's creeping back to even, and I'm wondering as an investor, Without a lot of cash, I should just hopefully break even on these warrants and shift into one of your other picks, Lumber Liquidators or Chesapeake. Um, so AIG's, AIG's been frustrating for a couple of years, and I've toyed with selling it a few times. And you know, Duperalt, I'm, I'm guessing that's how you pronounce that last name, uh, he's a really good insurance guy. Um, Hancock, you know, proved to be a little bit of a disaster. Um, Duperalt, has you know done some things with reinsurance and is getting finally um, underwriting under control. They've had two consecutive quarters of an underwriting profit, uh, so that's good. The stock really hasn't reacted really positively to it. Um, they have some money left on the buyback, but they haven't done much of that, and the dividend is what it is. So, you know, the warrants expire in twenty twenty one. So you have another, what, 13, 16 months in the warrants to see what's going to happen with them. You know, I, the way I look at it is I'm, I'm going quarter by quarter with AIG. If Duperall can, if Duperall can continue to do an underwriting profit, people are going to take notice and the stock should climb. Now, the flip side is they're getting killed with these interest rates. You know, it's, they don't have... It's not like banks where they can, you know, they're, they can lend. They have other ways to make money. Insurance, largely what they're investing or required to invest their reserves in is bonds, and they're getting killed on it. Um, and that doesn't help. So that's kind of a drag on them. So I, I'm, I'm quarter by quarter with it. And if it, you know, if, if, if it looks like, you know, and the results aren't going to keep improving or they're going to stall or reverse a little bit, then then yeah, I would consider selling it and move that money into something that I think has more upside um, in a different in a different time frame. I mean, I, I can you know I can see a situation where AIG claim climbs to 60, 65 bucks a share. I can see a scenario where it's fifty dollars a share for the next two years. So you know we'll have to see. You know if they were to do something like restart um, the buyback or something like that. That could give shares a boost, and that would be helpful. But you know, we don't we don't know what they're going to do. They're they're not at a lot of investor conferences, and they're not doing a lot of stuff right now, and they're not nearly as vocal as they were before about their plans uh, in between earnings calls. So I guess that's good and bad. They're just busy doing work and not trying to convince everyone. They're going to let results speak for themselves. But we'll have to see. Um, I held on to GE. My average cost is around thirteen. Is anything anything changed with your thoughts on GE? Well, I know we, you know, we sold it because when the forensic accounting stuff came out and um, sorry, I'm trying to drink water. Um, I'm not a forensic accountant, so you know, it's no, my thoughts haven't changed. I'm glad I sold it. It was one of those positions where, <clears throat> you know, I talked. I think I talked about it last week. It's like if if you have a position that's keeping you up at night because you're concerned about it, you probably should own it. And I kind of, that's where I was at GE. It was like, you know, what's, what's tomorrow's news going to be? Um, if this guy's right or even partially right, you know, I think you could see the stock just completely collapse. Um, if he's totally wrong, then I think the stock kind of stays where it is until they get their act together. So to me, it was, you know, the risk of significant downside. 
outweighed the possibility of a slow grind upside over the next couple of years. So I just cut my losses and licked my wounds and got rid of it. And I guess I kind of still feel the same way. So, All right. Regarding Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, in the recent Bloomberg interview, Calabria said, looking to rebuild capital, and once net worth sweep ends, which is part of our plan, then a lot of the losses go away. What do you think the outcome letter of agreement will include in order to let the majority of plaintiff litigation go away? How does that affect preferred and comments in short term and long term? If preferred is converted to common, what do you think the common price conversion will be? Uh, so I sort of answered this in the first one. Um, so when the net when the net worth so right now they're suing for the net worth sweep, right? And when if they get rid of the net worth sweep, then he's saying a lot of these losses go away because there's there's no more net worth sweep, right? That that would be the remedies to end the net worth sweep. So some of those called for the end of the net worth sweep. Now it doesn't end the DC court where Lambeth is, because in Lambeth court, even if they end the net worth sweep, that case will continue because their case is talking about restitution and damages. And as David Thompson said, damages typically are around 6% a year from the date of injury, which would be September 2012. And the courts are kind of divided, whether that's compound interest or simple interest. Um, if it's compound interest, then you probably get another 80% or above par. I'm just doing the math real quick in my head, so don't, don't take a calculator and tell me I'm 3% off. Um, and if it's simple interest, 6% a year, you get 42%, 6% a year for six years, or actually probably seven years by the time it's trial and litigated, everything like that, which would be almost 150% apart. So that won't go away, and the Sweeney Court won't go away either. Um, the Sweeney Court is challenging, you know, the whole thing. You know, it's even challenging the warrants, and the, but they're not challenging the existence of the warrants. They're challenging the warrants as being used as damages because of the dilution. Okay, so there's been some talk on Twitter about um, the warrants are going to just evaporate or the warrants are going to be settled and go away. And I don't, don't, I don't see a scenario where that happens um, if the Sweeney court goes to trial and they go through all this stuff and um, it's found for the, defendant, for the plaintiffs, which will be the shareholders, then the value of those warrants could be calculated and damages claims. That's what's that's what's gonna happen with those. But they're they're not gonna they're not gonna disappear, I don't think. Um I don't see a scenario where they do, so um what do I think the left will will offer to let? But I, I, I don't I don't I don't I think the end of the network sleep is gonna simply mean that the network sleep is being ended. I think it's gonna be very simple. They're gonna go step by step with this. I don't think it's gonna be this far reaching thing is i think i think that's what i just said that you know a lot of the lawsuits challenging the network sweep will obviously be over with because there's no more network sweep the only question then is other damages and how those calculated how it was taken into effect so um how does that affect preferred and commons in the short term and the long term um i think it's a step in the right direction i think the share should go higher because you know, it's I don't I don't think anyone believes the network sweep is going to be stopped right now because there's been so many we've been talking about in the network sweep, or Calabria has mentioned it. We've been talking about it since what May, and how many times have we thought? You know, I think everyone thought when the plan was announced a couple of weeks ago that they were going to declare the network sweep over and satisfied then, um, and now they're saying you know very soon or everyone's assuming by the end of September so they don't have to make that payment. They can start rebuilding capital right away, but. Again, there's been so many false starts here that I just think that people really just don't believe it, uh, which is why the stock's kind of where they are. So I would assume that every time something happens that is a step in that direction, the stock should start going higher. I don't know what the common's going to do. Um, you know, the common's going to depend on the dilution, on how much capital they figure they have to raise and how they're going to do it. Is it going to be all common stock? Is it going to be, a, uh, you know, some some preferred or convertible furs i mean what 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 form is the recap going to take place and that shows you how much the dilution of the common is going to be and that then will determine the price of the common so and you know new money is going to want that common stock price as low as possible 
right? You need to raise, Fannie Mae needs to raise what they're saying between 60 and $70 billion, the biggest IPO in history. That new money is going, you need to raise $1 billion, you can set your price. You need to raise $70 billion, you're told what they're going to offer you, right? They may offer them a dollar a share. And I don't, you know, they're going to have to negotiate that. But I, I don't see a scenario where it, new money buys in at four, five, six dollars a share. I just don't see it. I think when everything's done, there's future appreciation of the common shore. But in the very short term, when the talk and recap, I think uh, I think it's going to be up and down, and probably probably more so down than up in the short term or in the near term as they start talking prices and recap and dilution, things like that. So, you know, the preferred shares, I don't, I think should, I, I, I you know, I've been to this a bunch of times, but I just think the preferred shares are the safer bet right now. Um, and I think they have more definitive upside than common, which like I said before, it's going to be a roller coaster. I have no idea what it's going to do, but I think if I had to take a guess, it would drop from here. It's like about like 350, 370 right now. Um, as recap comes into focus and as they talk about the dilution. Um, if preferred is converted to common, what do you think the common, what do you think the common price on conversion? Uh, again, that's all guesser. Dick Beauvais thinks it converts around 250. Um, that, you know, I, I don't know. It's as good a guess as any. You know, I've seen, I've seen so many different scenarios and, you know, every scenario is, is just guesswork uh, because we don't know we don't know how much they're going to dilute it. And so you can't, you know, you, you, you can be a billion shares off and have it be a good estimate, but a billion shares off based on what they decide to do and what price they decide to do it at. So um, I, I do think that the preferred will convert. I do think that junior preferreds will convert. At par or higher, depending on these cases. So that's where I stand on that one. Uh, do you still recommend lumber decorators given the new recent founders' bizarre story? So I still hold it. So here's what I think is going to happen. I think he wants to own it, wants to merge it. I still think he wants it. That desire doesn't go away. And the plan, quote unquote, doesn't go away because the stock price went up. I think the stock price went up. He went public with his plans and drove the stock price even higher and was like, oh, shit. Sold it. He made like five million bucks for what three weeks' work. Not not bad if he can get it. Stock price dropped down to where he bought in even lower. My guess is that he'll if if he truly wants this, he'll start buying it. He'll start buying the stock again, but he'll keep it under five percent this time, so he doesn't have to go public with it. He can go to four point nine five percent if he wants, and then he'll do everything behind the scenes this time. You know, so maybe he. You know, maybe he, you know, if it was at around 13 bucks a share, he would have had to have paid 15, 16, or 17 for it, right? But if he does this quietly, even if it goes up to 9 or 10, he'll have to pay 12 or 13 for it, which would be a great profit for us in, what, two or three months, whatever long it takes, um, and we can move on. If he does nothing, I still think longer term for lumber liquidators, the story's huge, and it's gonna, it could be. It could be a multi-bagger um, over time, but you know, obviously, we don't we don't know what's going to happen in the short term. But I, I have a, I don't I don't think he walked away permanently. I think he took a pause, um, and if he really wants it, he's just got to do it differently this time. He can line up financing by himself quietly. He can do this all behind the scenes and go public with a bid for you know twelve or thirteen instead of fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. Save himself a boatload of money, still get what he wants. Shareholders who who are buying now still make a great profit in a short time, and it all works for everyone. So, any new comments on the outcome of T C H K and T P L given recent events as Saudi oil field has been hit? So, I think that even with the price of oil. Um, does not fully appreciate the potential 
disruption in oil supplies from these drone strikes. Um, half a Saudi output was taken off the market in 20 minutes from drone strikes. I mean, it used to be, right, it used to be attacks on these facilities where, you know, maniacs, you know, driving a, a, a loaded van with explosives through a gate right into a building that would blow it up, right? That was the way they had to do it in the old days. Um, those places are so fortified right now that, you know, they'd have to have a tank to even think about getting through, and they'd be caught coming miles away. But these drones, I mean, they didn't know they were coming. So, you know, if, if it was a more of a coordinated effort, could they have taken all of Saudi's stuff off? If they had, you know, Saudis are saying it's going to be a month and they'll be restored. If they had more drones, could they have crippled it for six, eight months? You know, the, the supply of U.S. supply of oil is below the five-year average, well below it. Demand isn't really falling. So, you know, I, I think oil, I think oil really, the oil price lower right now, I think everyone's under the illusion that uh, the U.S. can just step up you know, its abilities to produce more oil. Um, you know, it's like turn on a light bulb. And that's really not how it works. You know, people say, well, rig counts have fallen, so, you know, they just got to redo the rigs and put it up. Well, rig counts are falling not because of lack of demand. And rig counts are not falling because of uh, wells drying up. Rig counts are falling because of technology. They don't need as many wells as they used to have to still drill. I mean, Permian is still setting production records with less rigs. The rig count of Permian has been falling since about mid-2017. It's been flat or going lower. Yet production's continued on a straight line up, basically. You know, obviously not straight line, but you know what I mean. So that just tells you right there that it's rig counts falling don't mean that we can just simply put these rigs up and pump more oil. We're, we are, we're flat out. We're pumping flat out. We're just doing it more efficiently and better to produce more oil. So, you know, I don't, we'll see what happens, but, you know, this could be a new, a new, you know, now Saudis are looking to buy a drone interception technology from Israel, uh, which is ironic <laughs> in so many ways. Um, but I mean, you know, even that, it, that's, they still get through. And I don't, I don't think that's fully appreciated yet. The current, you know, we have a massive glut of oil in the world is the current thing we're thinking, you know. I remember peak oil in the 70s and the 80s and oil gluts. And I mean, it seems like every couple of years we have the opposite of, opposite thoughts on oil um, and natural gas. I mean, was it six, seven years ago? They were talking about depletion and fracking wells and how we've pretty much maxed out what we can get out of fracking. And, you know, we're what couple million barrels a day over that now because of fracking, because of technology. So, you know, it's, I think if you look at the history of oil, what tends to happen in situations like this is it tends to enter a phase where it spikes significantly higher. So that being said, TPL isn't necessarily a play on oil prices. If you look since 2010, 2010, the price of oil was in the 70s. It's in the low 60s now. And the price of TPL has gone up 2,000%. TPL is more of a play on the volumes of what's coming out of the ground than the price of it. And right now the volumes coming out of the ground of the Permian have kind of slowed a bit because there's no pipeline capacity. Kinder Morgan just delivered a massive pipeline. They have two more planned. Williams has one's planned. There's probably about a dozen to two dozen pipelines of various size. Some of them are just connectors, so they're not, you know, it's not like a huge deal. Um, but there's probably 10 large pipelines rushing to get built into the Permian to get takeaway capacity for the oil and gas there. And that's going to raise the price of both the oil and the gas from that area. And it's going to massively increase the amount of volumes they're going to take away, especially natural gas. Right now, they're just flaring it in the Permian. 
Kinder Morgan's going to take away 2 billion square feet a day. Um, their next one coming, I want to say mid next year, is going to take another 2 billion away. There's a few huge scale, uh, can, lot, can take away a lot of natural gas from the Permian. Well, I mean, and that's what TPL gets paid on. They get royalties based on what's coming through, right? What's taken out of the ground, what's shipped, and what's crossing on pipelines. And I do think that one interesting stat, drilled but uncompleted wells in the Permian have grown 55% in the last two years. Nationally, they've declined 1%. So what does that tell you? That tells you that they're not completing these wells right now because they can't get the product out of the ground because of no pipelines. Right, it's too expensive. You can't ship natural gas, you know, unless you have a liquefaction unit. Li- li- liquefaction unit there, you can't ship it on truck. You can't put it on a train. It's 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 just doesn't make any sense. It has to go through pipelines. But they can't just start drill. They just can't flare all the natural gas they want because there's environmental regulations and things like that. So they're stuck. And natural gas is a byproduct of. Oil drilling. So they're not adding more wells for oil because, again, they just can't get it to where they need to get it. But they know the pipelines are coming. So they've drilled hundreds and hundreds of wells but haven't finished them yet. Once those pipelines go in, you're going to see an explosion of activity in the Permian. Now we can finish the well. We can complete the well because we can get the gas and oil to where we need to get it. That's going to happen, and it's going to start happening now. And it's going to start happening over the next two, three years in a substantial way. And, you know, and who owns the most acreage in the largest oil play on Earth right now? TPL. And who collects royalties over everything that crosses their property? TPL. And who's got a budding water business that's going to have to, all these wells, and they're completed, all these fracked wells are going to need massive amounts of water, and they're going to need water, water businesses to help them out. Who's got that? TPL. So that, I think that's the story of the Permian. And it's, it's, not a, a, it's not a fracking story. It's a pipeline story right now. And these wells are there, and they're going to be completed. And when they are, you're going to see some heavy-duty action there. I mean, Exxon's not investing $12 billion in the Permian on a hunch. Chevron's not investing $8 billion in the Permian because they, they think it might be you know, worth their while. They're investing that much money because they expect many more billions to be made off that investment over time. And, you know, it's, the, it's, it's an exciting time. You know, you have oil in the Permian coming out of the ground because of technology, and when they get the pipelines in, that's profitable at $30 a barrel. And TPL is just going to keep getting the royalties. Additionally, if we can ever get, you know, if we can get converted to a C-Corp, and even if we don't, even if we don't get converted to a C-Corp, let's say they just decide not to do it, be too costly, tax consequences, whatever you want to say. If... If Stahl has someone in there, they can at least improve disclosure, right? They're not, they're not, um, they're not required to disclose a lot because they're the way they're set up, so they don't. But that doesn't mean that they, they can't. Nothing's stopping them from filing a, a 10Q like they would if they were C-Corp. Nothing at all stopping them from doing that. I'm pretty sure that if they offered to change the trust docs to require that we have it, I'm pretty sure shareholders would vote for it. So even if they don't do the conversion, they could still give us what we want, which is disclosure, uh, earnings calls, things like that. That would then generate interest from Wall Street or institutional investors. It would expand the potential investor pool. So I, I think you win-win either way right there. All right, Chesapeake is the same thing in the region. Chesapeake right now just signed a pipeline deal, and they're looking for others to get the oil out of the ground there. This is another pipeline story. And the price of oil goes up when you ship on a pipeline versus shipped on a train or shipped on trucks because it's cheaper. 
I think the last numbers I saw was it's about three dollars a barrel by um, uh, by pipeline. It's about eight to ten by train and about fifteen by truck. And the price of what they're going to pay for it is based on what they, take, they got to ship for it. So you're, you you know you ship by pipeline. If you're shipping versus truck or train, then you, then you start shipping by pipeline. You, it goes up materially the price you're going to get for it. So that will be very beneficial for Chesapeake Energy too. So um, that's what that's kind of on a tangent on that one. But I do think that um, the Permian's kind of coiled right now, and when those pipelines get there, it's going to be pretty exciting. And you know, I'm I'm really happy to own shares and the person who owns the most land in that area. Um, you know, it's like an infinite call option on the drilling and activity of the Permian is really what it is. It's a call option that never expires. It's a call option on a technology that's going to get more oil out of the ground, on global demand for oil. It's going to keep growing. Of U.S. demand for oil, on exports, on natural gas. It's just a global, it's just a call option on all that and every aspect of it. And they have no debt and their costs are, are minimal. You know, the only real costs they have right now are, you know, what they're paying the trustees and what they're, what they're doing the water business. So it's a great business. So, and then buying back their stock. When will you post the information and presentations for us on cannabis? Why, why do you not think cannabis business is just media hype like that of Bitcoin? Will there be an ultimate moral issue on this business, especially recreational cannabis? Will this business be, in the end, like that of e-cigarettes? Okay, a uh, bunch of stuff there. Uh, I'll take it backwards. Will this business be at the end of the e-cigarette? Absolutely not. Um, so the e-cigarette e thing is interesting. I think, what, seven people have died because of this disease. And, and I think what they're finding out now is a lot of it is because of black market things. Right? Um, Every study I've seen, e-cigarettes are safer than smoking by about 90%. You can find some 85, some 95, whatever. But that's how much safer they are than actually smoking a cigarette. So there is a public health concern that banning e-cigarettes will cause those people then to go back to smoking cigarettes, which is worse for them. I think 500 cases of this lung disease have been done nationwide, which is a small fraction of the cancers from smoking, various types of cancers from smoking, and other health risks from smoking. And seven people have died, and they're not entirely sure why those people died yet. So was it the e-cigarette? Was it an allergic reaction to something in it? Was, you know, one, one, um, one e-cigarette cartridge is about a pack of cigarettes. Were they going through a cartridge a day? Right? Two packs a day of cigarettes? I and mean, that's gonna kill you quick. Um, so I, I understand that, you know, a lot of retailers are taking them off the shelves, da, 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 but I don't think they're going away. I think maybe they start to ban the flavored ones or certain things like that, or the some restrictions on e-cigarettes, but, um, you know, until you can prove that smoking an e-cigarette is more dangerous than a natural cigarette, which are legal, then I think you're going to have a tough time. You know, even the FDA has admitted that e-cigarettes are safer than... I mean, inhaling anything into your lungs is inherently not safe, but these are safer than cigarettes. And there has been a significant decline in smoking since e-cigarettes have been legal. So from a public health perspective... In the aggregate, e-cigarettes have been beneficial. Now we just got to figure out what's causing this disease and what were their usage metrics and was there other some was there, was there other underlying um, health issues people had that were that triggered something in the e-cigarettes? You know, had they been smoking cigarettes for 15 years and then switched e-cigarettes? And we don't know. We don't know the details yet until we do. You know, there's a you know, of course, politicians are going to start running into me, and the news is going to jump all over it. But 
you know, most of us just posturing right now and they don't really know what's going on. Um, would there be an ultimate moral issue on this business, especially recreational cannabis? Well, I think there's been a moral issue on it for just 100 years. So I think just the opposite is what's actually happening is that the moral issue is going away. You know, just like the e-cigarettes or cigarettes, you know, cannabis, wherever, wherever, two things happen. When, can, when, when recreational cannabis becomes legal, and even medical cannabis becomes legal, two things immediately happen. Alcohol deaths drop, alcohol-related deaths drop, alcohol sales drop, and opiate overdoses drop by about 20-30%. And opioid usage drops significantly too. Heroin, cocaine, prescription drugs. So, again, there is a public health benefit to cannabis in both recreational and medical form, especially medical cannabis. You know, recreational, you know, it's not as correlated because I think only 12 states have legalized it yet, but 34, um, I think it's 34 now, have legalized medical in some form, not even complete legalization, but in some form with various restrictions. And the public health benefits have been immediate in those areas. So the moral issue, I think people are, people are seeing that, you know, everyone, I don't think anyone denies we have an opioid epidemic in the U.S. I think people say, okay, they, if they have cannabis, and you don't have to smoke cannabis, you can eat it, you can drink it, there's, you don't have to ruin your lungs to obtain it. Um, that morally that this is helpful. This is helpful for people who manage pain, for people, you know, not every strain of cannabis is the same. Some keep you awake. Some make you more alert. Um, some make you sleepy. It, it all depends on what you have. And used properly, there's extreme benefit for people using it. And we have, you know, cannabis, ironically, is the most studied entity out there. There's more studies on cannabis than every opioid or prescription medication combined they've been studying cannabis for years now the fda will say there's not because we haven't studied it in the u.s because it's been schedule one it's been illegal and the fda has been very vocal about removing that so they can study it but other countries have been studying it for, for hundreds of years israel's done countless studies on cannabis and its benefits and the um the uh, efficacy of it for various things. Even CBD, when made appropriately and taken, has immediate benefits on people. I don't, this is kind of a side story, but so every, every, every organism with a brain and a spinal column has an endocannabinoid system in their body. This was, this was discovered by Israel, Israeli doctors or scientists. And CBD, when used, right, and again, now CBD market is right now there's, you know, it, it's, it's not regulated and it should be and it, and it will be um, because, you know, you can, you can get a CBD gummy that's, you know, 10% CBD and one that's 0.1% and pay the same price for it and get no benefit at all. There are le very legitimate companies that sell very good product out there and, you know, that's what and so that's available to people. But, you know, if you're going by the gas station and picking up CBD things, you might have to eat the whole pack to actually derive the medical benefits of it. But every organism has an endocannabinoid system. And the way the CBD and the terpenes interact is there's three things that CBD helps do. So it helps cure sleep orders, anxiety, and helps with pain management. And those also happen to be the three biggest uses of prescription drugs. Think about that. Now, how, how, how American, uh, Americans, people, hemp used to be, it's a CBD is derived from hemp oil. Hemp used to be the most used crop in the world for thousands of years. It was used for clothing. It was used for ropes. Navies used to use it for ropes. I mean, it was literally used for everything. Anything you see that's cotton right now, you see made out of hemp. And ropes used to be, I mean, it was, it was literally served. And hemp seeds were the primary feedstock for animals. And the plant, was, plant is so hardy, you don't have to harvest that by cutting out the ground. You just, you just cut it off a foot off the ground and it grows back. It's like a weed. But it's incredibly useful. So for, for thousands of years, 
animals were fed hemp seeds as feed. Now, so what happens there? They ingest the hemp seeds and the oils. Then you slaughter the animals or drink the milk or eat the eggs. And for thousands of years, human beings evolved by naturally ingesting CBD via the hemp that animals were fed. When the English colonized the New World, they brought hemp over here. So think about that. Your bodies, you as a human, have evolved over thousands of years ingesting CBD, which helps your endocannabinoid system. It helps regulate your endocannabinoid system. And then in 1917, and then throughout the world around that time, it was outlawed. And animals stopped ingesting it. So now we take prescription medicines to cure the things that CBD we used to get naturally in CBD from hemp. The Denver University of Denver did a study recently where they started feeding chickens hemp seeds. Their eggs ended up being about 1% pure CBD, which is perfectly helpful for you and, 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 and healthful. So we may see, I mean, hemp is just starting to, that industry is just starting to get cranked up in the U.S., we may see go back to animal feet. We may start getting it naturally. But there's the science behind cannabis and the science behind the usefulness of other products associated with it uh, is undeniable and has been studied for years. So I think morally, the back to, that was a long-winded answer. I apologize. But morally, I think as that is recognized more and as people see it more, I mean, some people, people still think CBD get you high. It won't. There's no THC in it at all. So you can't get high from it. Now, it can make you feel better in that it can help you sleep. It can reduce, There's some forms you can reduce anxiety and you know it, it helps with pain management. So yes, you will feel better, but you won't get that loopy high you get with marijuana. So as more, as more information goes to the public, I think the moral issue is going to completely be a non-factor and it's going to just swing. And it already has been swinging. You look at studies from 10 years ago, five years ago, and now the acceptance of it, uh, people wanting it approved uh, has grown exponentially. I think the last thing I saw is 90% of Americans want medical marijuana approved federally, nationally, across the nation. Um, the government now is leaving it up to the states. There's bills before Congress that want to, you know, deschedule it from Schedule 1. And, you know, they want to schedule it like it's, um, uh, um, Jesus, uh, cough syrup. You know what I mean? Over-the-counter. Um, the FDA can certainly regulate it, and they're going to regulate it because government needs to regulate things. Um, but, you know, there's, there's no polls out there right now where the majority of people are against it. Everybody's for it. People are seeing it. People are reading about it. The industry's doing a decent job um, getting the truth out there about it and educating people about it. Um, but, you know, people used to, you know, the one common thing, oh, it's a gateway drug, it's a gateway drug. Well, yeah, it's a gateway drug to get off opioids is what it is. It's the opposite of what people say. People said that, yo, you smoke pot, then you move on to cocaine and heroin. And, and no, the actual evidence and the proof is just the opposite. That no, you don't go it. And actually people on it go off it. Instead of taking painkillers or sleep aids, they can use cannabis. Instead of taking, you know, a, you know, pharmaceuticals for anxiety, they can use certain strains of cannabis. And used responsibly, certain strains and certain um, quantities, they don't affect your life. They do their job and they don't affect your life. You can still work. You can still function. So... Um, that's about that. Sorry about that. Um, why do you think cannabis business is not is just? Why do you not think the cannabis business is just media hype like that of Bitcoin? I don't even think you could compare the two. I think there's legitimate arguments uh, for Bitcoin that it's never going to be what it what they claim is going to be. Um, I don't see how those arguments hold hold water for cannabis. Um, now, if you're asking me about the stocks, you know, there's a reason I don't own any stocks in publicly traded cannabis companies. Because, yeah, you know, there's going to be huge swings. 
Um, as I said before, I, I view most of them as just roll-ups, meaning, you know, Tilray isn't going to walk into Massachusetts and get, a and get a license to open 10 dispensaries. It's not going to happen. So what do they do? They have to go in and buy existing ones from local people who have extensions. And that's where the money's made. And that's, that's, where, um, that's where I'm working with this group and, and raising money and, and investing in that. Because that's where the big money is. You know, you get dispensaries, you know, bringing in half a million, three quarters of a million dollars a week. Uh, the multiples of what they're selling for is are outlandish and incredible. And people are making, people are making fortunes in very short times. Um, so, no, I don't think it has anything to do with like Bitcoin. Now, again, like I said, the stocks of public traded companies are going to be very volatile. Um, and that's the reason why I don't own them. It's because I acknowledge that. Um, you know, even... You look at it, IPR has been incredibly volatile lately, and over what? <clears throat> they don't sell it. You have to grow medical marijuana indoors. It's a great business to be in, and they, they build the houses and loan you the money to build it. So, you know, it's, they're all going to trade in unison because it's quote-unquote a pot stock, even though it really isn't, so it's going to be a little volatile. Um, but the difference is the financials at IIPR are outstanding, and the financials are some of the publicly traded Pot company, they're still losing money, right? A lot of those big companies are still losing money. IPR is fabulously profitable, giving us a hell of a dividend that's growing almost 100% year over year. So, uh, again, sorry, went off on a tangent there. Um, so, when will you post your information and presentations for us on cannabis? So, I can only give them to accredited investors. Um, so, if you are an accredited investor, if you're interested, then two things need to happen. You need to reach out to me and send me an email. We need to have a quick conversation and then I can give you what you want and I can um, introduce you to the people who can answer every question you have. Um, <clears throat> you'll have to um, sign an NDA because they're going to give you financials and things like that. So a bunch of you have reached out and I, I think, um, I, I'm pretty sure that Probably a half a dozen to 10 of you are going to um, are planning on making an investment. And I know some of you are in different kind of negotiations, which is just, I'm so excited for everybody. Um, <clears throat> it'd be nice if we could put together a, a value plays syndicate and kind of invest as a group. I think that'd be a really fun thing to do. Uh, but again, I, you know, uh, I can't, if you're not accredited, um, accredited investors simply, um, so if you're single, Make over two fifty, married, make over three hundred thousand, or have a net worth of a million dollars. You're an accredited investor. And then we can talk all day long, and I can send you whatever information you want. And you can get all the information. You can make a decision on what you want to do. So, uh, but the first step is uh, you need to send me a um, you need to send me an email. Just reach out, and I'll be in touch with everyone. Uh, but you know the The opportunities are staggering. It's not even just in the, in the, um, it's not even just in the dispense. I mean, the dispensaries make a ton of money, but there's only so many of those licenses are going to go out because it's all tied to liquor licenses and things like that. Um, but there's opportunities in in cultivation, the technology opportunities that are out there. It just it's stuff I had never even thought of that every business in the world uses daily, that none of it exists for the cannabis space. So people are making are just software design, the things that they're doing that, you know, think about it. Like, you know, someone's going to come up with an Excel for cannabis as far as, you know, growing and monitoring things and tying that into to distribution and consumers and the CRM part of it. It's just, it's, it's really, it's really amazing what's going on. And this is, this is, this is the ground floor and things are moving really fast and it's really exciting. So, um, Eventually, these companies will be public. Um, you know, eventually, a larger company will buy them. You know, eventually, other, you know, software companies will buy them. I'm, I'm guessing maybe, you know, you won't have a Microsoft or a Salesforce buying any of these things because it's still federally illegal. So, you know, you'll have the Canadian companies buy it, um, things like that. So, I mean, the, there's... You know, if you if you look if you look at the industry right now, it's growing so fast, and there's so many barriers ahead of it. When those barriers are removed, the growth is just going to dwarf what they're seeing today. And today is incredibly impressive. You know, 
when it's not illegal federally anymore, when when all the states have a recreational legalized, you know, when 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 you can have the huge multinational companies in the U.S. based in the U.S. come in and get involved in it, that the growth is just gonna it's gonna explode. Because at the end of the day, using medical cannabis is better than taking Ambien for sleep. It's better than taking you know, Zoloft or whatever people take for anxiety or, or depression. It's better than taking, you know, um, a, a pharmaceutical pain, pain kills that people get hooked on and OD on. It, it's better than all that. So um, I think that was a long-winded answer. Again, I apologize, but uh, I just really believe in it. And I think that, um, I think that uh, it's, it's very exciting. It's, it's the birth of a brand new industry um, that has the potential to help a lot of people. And I think when you put those things together, um, you end up with, you know, fantastic results. So, so that's it for the questions. Um, again, if you're interested, reach out. I can get you anything you want. I can hook you up with anyone you want. If you're going to be in Boston, here you go. If you're going to be in Boston, um, On October 16th, there is going to be an event for accredited investors um, in Boston um, for investors and entrepreneurs. So you can actually meet some of the people doing some of these amazing things um, in Boston. It says from 6 to 9 p.m. If you're going to be there in Boston and you're interested and you want to go and you want to meet these people, you want to you kind of find out for yourself what's going on and what some of these people are doing, um, then, uh, again, send me an email and I can get you on the list and you could, if nothing else, we could meet and, and have, uh, have some food and some fun and talk to some really interesting people. So it's, it's going to be a great event. The, the group that I'm working with is putting it on. I've been to a couple of them previously and they're all, um, they're all really exciting to go to. It's, it's a different group of people every time, uh, different entrepreneurs, you know, different things like that. So, um, that's October 16th in, in Boston, Mass. All right, so I hope everyone has a very happy, very safe weekend, and uh, I will be back next week.